Would you stand with me as we read, please? Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but, the, but it is not in our power to help it, for, our, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and their words. I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration forty shekels of silver, Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at My expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. The word of the Lord. 
Breaking Bad tells the story of Walter White, a uh, chemistry teacher in Albuquerque who diagnosed with terminal cancer, decides to start cooking meth in order to provide for his family. And Walter White is the kind of figure that was, uh, critics point to the Sopranos as creating the kind of character who's sympathetic, you know, who's a dark hero. There's glimmers of hope, there's glimmers of humanity, but they find themselves or commit themselves to a course by virtue of what's happening in their lives where they continue to descend deeper and deeper into darkness. And if you're reading through the Old Testament, certainly, you may conclude this before, but certainly by Nehemiah chapter 5, you conclude, oh, Israel is Walter White. They're sympathetic. There are glimmers of humanity. But as you proceeded coming out of Egypt, the people have settled in the promised land after a generation had to die in the wilderness. During the time of Judges, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There's no leader who really can sustain change for the people. Finally, God says, okay, I'll give you a king. I don't, not really my idea, but you want a king, let's have a king. And the kings lead the people into greater darkness. Finally, they're exiled, kicked out of the land, punished for 70 years. And finally, they come back and you think, okay, surely you've learned something at this point, only for them to be selling each other into bondage in Nehemiah 5. So right at the get-go, you, a sense you should have from reading chapter 5 of Nehemiah is a certain sense of hopelessness. Like, is the story ever going to be redeemed? Are God's people ever going to be faithful? Is this ever going to work out? At this point, you know, as you're looking at Israel and thinking Israel is Walter White, you also need to have a sense, you know, I'm Walter White too. And if you get that, if, you, if I say you're Walter White, and some of you think, yeah, I am. And that's why I need Jesus, and that's good. But some of you think, yeah, that's a big jump. And, you know, one of the things that you need to wrestle with is if you're not Walter White, then why do you need the cross, right? God's remedy to your problem is grossly disproportional. He's really way overcompensated for your problems, right, if you're not Walter White or, frankly, far worse. What's the problem at hand in Nehemiah 5? We're going to spend most of our time this morning trying to diagnose, trying to understand the problem before we understand uh, God's solution in Nehemiah and ultimately his solution for us. A great outcry, as it said in verse 1, has gone up from the people. Well, why? There's a lot of injustice happening. Uh, There's a famine that's come upon land, and it doesn't tell us exactly why the famine is occurring. It may be that everyone's working on the wall day and night. It may be climatic factors are playing in as well. But there's not enough food, and in an ancient agrarian culture... Not enough food means at least recession, if not depression. People are, 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 um, don't have enough food to sell and to eat, and so they have to start leveraging what they have. And so you have a number of ways people are falling deeper into debt. Some people are mortgaging their houses, their farms, their animals, and some people are borrowing money to pay the king's taxes. Either way they're going, they find themselves then in a place where they can't pay back the money. Well, in the ancient world, what did the bank, the creditors do when you couldn't pay back your money? They came and took your children. Your children would work their farms and their vineyards and their estates until your debt was paid off. So, boys and girls, perhaps you can be thankful this morning that you don't have to pay off your parents' debts by working on someone else's estate until that is paid off. This is an ancient custom. 
And the people who are suffering the most are the poor people. Like our children, our families are suffering. We're being torn apart. Everything is falling apart. Remember, why is everything falling apart? Because the people have been called to work on God's building project. Right? The situation is bad. Imagine, you know, put yourself in the shoes a little bit of you're called back from exile to Jerusalem, which is a dilapidated ghetto, and asked to rebuild the wall, and you say, okay, I'll participate. Famine occurs. You might be thinking I was a little bit better off in exile at this point than I am right now as a poor Jewish person. And who are the creditors? Who are the people who are coming and taking the children? That's fellow Jews. It's the rich Jews who have the money to spare and the land to work and haven't had to sell anything yet. So you see almost a, uh, a cannibalistic mentality within the people of God as they're called back to the land. Right? Now, the irony here, which Nehemiah is going to pick up on, is these people were just brought out of slavery. Right? They've just been brought out of 70 years of oppression, only in the next breath to oppress one another. Again, we see and understand a degree of hopelessness as God's people try to live it out, live out their calling. And Nehemiah recognizes how serious this is. In verse 8, he put, it's kind of a, a play on words and the, word, the verb to sell and sold. He says, listen, God rescued us from being slaves only so that we could sell each other back into bondage. Understand what they're doing by engaging in their sin, by not turning to God, the effect of that sin is that they're reversing redemption. Right? God has been liberating them, but now that they don't turn to God in the midst of their need, which we'll unpack a little bit more in a minute, right? but nobody's turning to God here, the effect of that is that redemption is reversed. They're moving backwards. And Nehemiah says in verse 10, this is because there's no fear of God. Ought we not to walk in the fear of the Lord? Now, fear isn't terror. It doesn't mean you're not scared enough. It means you don't revere God. And the language of reverence in the Old Testament almost always refers to the sense that you don't revere God because you are acting like He doesn't exist. To revere God is to make decisions that reflect that you believe that God really exists. And so he says, as a result of you living in such a way, uh, you, you confess by your actions that God does not exist. So it's a, it's a huge problem, both for faith, for obedience, for everything regarding God's people. And in the midst of this situation, let's just make three observations. And one we've really already made, which is this is a hopeless situation. If God's people haven't gotten their act together at this point, why would you expect that they're going to? Right? Can you imagine? It's like having a child who does something. You say, okay, ch- child, you are on seven years probation. Right? I ground you for seven years. I take this away for seven years. I take, I take video games away for seven years. And on the day he gets his video games back, he does the exact same sin that you took it away for seven years f- from him. For w- I botched that sentence, but you get the idea. Right? It's hopeless. You think there's nothing's going to solve the problem. And that, that's an important sense to have. There is not, in, in the hearts of God's people, from a human perspective, it is a hopeless situation. There is no remedy. It will continue to get worse and worse. Secondly, the, the problem that is uh, first and foremost or most apparent is the love of money. Right? Now, what you need to note to really 
to get a feel for what's going on is, is that no one is turning to God. In other words, both groups, both the poor and the rich, are turning to money. And you see that in this sense. The poor, the famine's occurring, there's nothing to eat, and there's a great outcry, but the outcry is not to God. It's simply an outcry that there's not adequate justice. It's an outcry say, saying, leadership, why don't you do something? But it's not a pursuit of God that he would actually provide food or remedy the situation. And what have they done up until this point? They're, you know, the silence in the midst of this situation for, the pe- for God's people is deafening. Right? If you're hungry and you're about to go into significant debt, you would think there would be some prayer or some crying out to God. There's none. What do they turn to? They turn to money, selling their possessions, borrowing money, because they think, in my place of need, in my adversity, what's going to save me? I am. I'm going to manage money and get more money and get myself out of debt. The rich are also turning to money in terms of they're in the midst of this adversity and situation. And do they think, what a wonderful opportunity to be faithful to the law and actually provide for and care for my brethren who are struggling? which the law makes ample opportunity for. Not at all. They say, huh, this is a great opportunity for us to make some money, for us to build our lands and our estates. Unless we let Nehemiah off the hook, notice in verse 10 that Nehemiah admits that he's participated in the practice. He and the people who have come with him have also engaged in this practice of lending money at interest to the brothers of Israel, which he's not supposed to do. So why is, you know, we see that in both cases, for both groups of people, there's an immediate running to money as that which will handle the problem at hand. Money will solve the adversity that we face. Is money that powerful? You might remember our Lord's words in terms of money as we think about it. In Matthew six twenty four, Jesus made it quite clear, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. I don't think we believe that. I think we spend a lot of time and energy thinking about how we, oh yeah, we can serve, we can get what we want and have the money that we desire, and we can serve God all at the same time with no tension. And Jesus says you can't do it. There's no way to thread that needle. There was a funny story in the news this week. Uh, Riley Flattery was, uh, is a New Yorker. He was at a Wilco concert, and he lost his wallet at the concert. So he was disappointed, upset. He realized that he was going to have to replace his driver's license, his credit cards, everything. Uh, but toward the end of that week after the concert, he received an unmarked envelope in the mail. And as he opened it, out fell a number of the contents of his wallet, his driver's license, his credit cards, And so he was 